chapter 19, and we finish this cycle in the book of Revelation. We have what I think is five weeks left after this, um, Lord willing. Uh, So we're getting close uh, to the end. This morning, we'll look at verses 11 through 21. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Hear now God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we we need you. As the old hymn says, we need thee every hour. Oh, how we need you now. Father, when confronted with a passage like this, we are shocked, we're even grieved, we're even full of hope, we rejoice, we celebrate. Father, all the feelings rush in with a passage like this. So we thank you that it's your word and that it's true and that you gave it to us for our good to reveal yourself and your will, and to lead us to not only right thinking, but right worship and practice as well. So Father, be with your people 
be with us, help us open our eyes that we might understand. Father, work in our hearts by your spirit, making us more like Jesus. And God, would you help me, help me, your servant, keep me from error. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. Oh God, you are our rock and our redeemer, our ever-present help in time of need. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout history, artists have been artists. And artists have attempted to depict the Lord Jesus Christ and his life and his ministry here on earth. Whether they be painted on canvas, uh, arrayed in colored glass, or shaped by clay or metal, there are countless works, countless pieces of art to be found Any place from museums to sanctuaries to even living rooms all across the globe. And many of the moments captured in these works of art are easily recognized by many of us. The royal baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem. The good shepherd leading his flock with his staff in hand. Healing the man born blind, or perhaps touching the head of the suffering leper, calming the raging sea, feeding the multitudes, glorified upon the mounts of transfiguration, seated with his disciples at the Last Supper, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, hanging on the cross at Calvary, rising from the tomb in victory, ascending to heaven as his disciples watch. And of course, the ever popular standing at the door and knocking, waiting for someone to let him in. But there's one event in the life and ministry of Jesus that is rarely, if ever, portrayed. Admittedly, I'm someone who struggles to draw even an accurate stick figure But I've often wondered why this event is largely ignored by those who do possess immense artistic talent. Is it because it's just too difficult to capture? Is it because it betrays the status quo of best-selling, meek and mild Jesus trinkets and pictures? Or is it because it's an event that many honestly just don't want to face up to? Whatever that reason might be, this morning, we come face to face with it. In our text this morning, we come face to face with this event, with vivid detail and both glorious and terrifying hues of color. We get to lay our eyes on an image of Jesus Christ like no other. In Revelation 19, 11 through 21, which we just read, we get to behold the returning, conquering king, the one who comes to judge, the one who comes to make war, the one who triumphantly puts an end to all of his enemies. 
just as looking at a painting is illuminating, right? As you get closer and closer, you can see details that you can't see from far away. Just like that, I want to invite you this morning to draw closer to this picture with me. I want you to marvel at the various brush strokes and the layers of texture that bring this wonderful picture. And it is a wonderful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ to life right before our very eyes. To help guide you in this understanding, I've divided the text into two sections. And if you're taking notes, these sections will make up the outline for the sermon this morning. I'll go ahead and give them to you up front. First, we're going to look at the returning king. The returning king. That's verses 11 through 16. And second, we'll look at the triumphant king. The triumphant king, verses 17 through 21. Let's come, first of all, then to verses 11 through 16 and the returning king. And right away, I want you to notice how this section begins. Look at those first words. John says, Then I saw heaven opened. Then I saw heaven opened. We remember that the book of Revelation presents to us these cycles. And in fact, I've argued all along that it presents to us seven cycles, seven pictures of the time between Jesus' ascension into heaven and then his return on the last day. It's seven descriptions of Christ's reign throughout the gospel age to restrain and to warn and to finally punish evil. And at times when we come to the end of these cycles, just as we do today, coming to the end of the sixth cycle, we we see veiled glimpses of Christ's return. You might remember that in chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, we, we saw that the sky was rolled up like a scroll. Remember the wicked tried in vain to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. You might remember, too, that when the seventh trumpet blew back in chapter 11, verse 15, we heard loud voices in heaven make that final proclamation. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then chapter 14, verses 14 through 16, you might remember that we saw one like a son of man seated on a white cloud with a sharp sickle in his hand, ready to harvest the earth, all pictures of the same event on the last day. But now, now here in verse 11, the veil is lifted. They're not unveiled. They're not veiled anymore. Excuse me. It's unveiled. The veil is lifted. And John now sees heaven fully opened, fully opened. And he beholds a sight that's going to be seen by all on the last day. For no longer as we've seen throughout this book, that we peer through windows or doors into heaven. But this time, heaven itself opens up so that the returning king is seen coming to earth in his full and final glory. And the details of this just rush at us like a flood. The first detail, the first one that you see right away is that Upon his return, he's seated, and he's seated on a white horse. 
Uh, This was a very provocative image for the Roman world in which John originally wrote this book to in a, a culture where emperors and conquering generals rode white horses in triumph. John sees the ultimate conqueror coming to earth in ultimate triumph, seated on the white horse of victory. Next, I'm going to go through these. There's a lot of them. Notice that the one sitting on the horse, notice what he's called first. Faithful and true. Faithful and true. He's the the warrior Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. He's the Savior who slayed the hosts of Pharaoh after parting the Red Sea. He's the captain of the Lord's army who appeared to Joshua after Israel crossed the Jordan. He's the warrior Messiah that was anticipated in deliverers like Moses and kings like David and foretold by prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the others. And now here he is. Here he is, the one who is himself faithful and true. The one to whom all the other pictures pointed to. They're all types and shadows. Here he is, and he's returning to reign over all the earth, bodily present. And it says that he returns in righteousness. He returns and righteousness, to judge and to make war. Jesus judges. He is the judge. And he comes to judge and to make war. His righteousness is emphasized here in several ways. Look at his eyes. As verse 12 tells us, we've seen this picture before early in the book. His eyes are like a flame of fire says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Remember, this is a picture book, not a puzzle book. It's a picture book. His eyes are like a flame of fire. It tells us that Jesus is absolutely pure. It tells us that he sees all things. His eyes are penetrating. Nothing escapes his gaze. It's saying that the people of the earth are his subjects, and every single person, and you've seen it through this text, whether Generals or kings are all the way down to all mankind. All, all are going to have to give account to him. All must give account to the judge who comes to judge. We're going to get to that when we come to the end of chapter 20, the great throne judgment. We'll get to see a picture of that as we continue to see this final day. Also, I want you to notice his head. On his head are many diadems or crowns. On his head are many diadems, ruling crowns. You may remember that the dragon, who's Satan, was seen with seven diadems, seven. And you remember that his beast, the beast out of the sea, later appeared with ten diadems on its horns, right? It's a horn's strength and rule, and then he's got Ten diadems on those. It's like this show of strength, right? In John's day, this was important to the original readers of this book and hearers of this book, and now even to us, this is important. These crowns, these diadems were usually ribbons 
long ribbons that were tied upon the head of the sovereign. And each of these ribbons would bear the name of territories or nations that this sovereign ruled over. But the list of all the places that Jesus rules is vast. It's not to be numbered. It can't be numbered as seven or as 10, but rather it's to be known as many. Lots and lots are in fact all. Jesus is the sovereign over every realm. There's not a corner of this earth where Jesus Christ is not king. He is king and ruler over it all. There's more details. Verse 12 also tells us that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. That's a lot of questions, right? We have a lot of questions when we read that. What does this mean? And What I think, there's many views on this, but what I think is that we need to see this as a nod or an acknowledgement of the unfathomable deity of Jesus, the unsearchable riches of Jesus. You know, in the ancient world, to know someone's true name was a way to exercise power over that person. And it might be the difference in saying, come here, Ben, or saying, Benjamin Wallace Lehman, come here. To know someone's true and full name is a way of exercising power over that person. So by having a name that only he knows, Jesus remains far and beyond the full grasp of any. We cannot fully comprehend all that he is for us. We have what we know in the word. The secret things belong unto our God. We can't fully grasp his deity and who he is, especially when I say we, so much more so for those who would come against him. They can't exercise any power over him. Another important detail is seen in verse 13. I want you to look there with me again. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He is clothed in a robe that is dipped with blood. There are two ways. There's really two ways to interpret this. There's probably more, but these are the two that I'll focus on this morning. I think this is important. Um, And actually, I find it hard to decide which one is best. So I'm gonna give you both. Some argue that the blood on the robe is actually the blood of Jesus' enemies. And the people who take this side, they, they go to Isaiah 63, one through six for support. And that's actually in view of this whole passage is Isaiah 63 throughout all of Revelation 19 here. I think Isaiah 63 is in view and there, it's, God is being asked from, where did you come? You know, I came from the wine press. And why is there blood on your robe? Well, this blood is the blood of my enemies who I tread in the wine press, which is language, as you know, that we see here, right? We, we, we wonder, is that the blood of his enemies? And why is it there as he comes? Why is it not there afterwards? Well, everything about this passage is assuring you and me, that Christ is victorious. And so, so certain is his victory, it's not even a question 
There's no doubt it's not a a typical battle where it's a back and forth and who has enough grit and resolve and who's tactically smart enough and who's able to employ the right thing. Who can keep their supply lines going long enough? It's not your typical battle. This is a battle that is already done. And so perhaps the blood represents the blood of the enemies as Isaiah 63. But I think there's also a good reason to see this blood as representing Jesus' own atoning blood the blood that he shed for the cleansing of sin. We've seen over and over again in this book that the people of God conquer how? They conquer by the blood of the lamb. And it reasonably follows that the victory that we are beholding here is a fulfillment of the victory that Jesus already won upon the cross where he crushed the head of the serpent. It's the defeat of our great enemy Satan and even the defeat of sin and death itself. And I think this view is highlighted by what we see in verse 14, the ones who were following him, the ones who are right behind the returning king. This described here as the armies of heaven, which yes, will include the angel armies of heaven, but also I believe it includes the victorious co-conquerors. Those who are conquerors with Christ, arrayed in what? Fine linen, white and pure. The very thing that the church was promised in the first three chapters that they would be arrayed in as they overcome the devil, as they overcome the world. And how are they riding? Upon white horses, victory horses as well. So I hope you see uh, both interpretations are good options. They're good options. I don't think you can go wrong with either one. And Perhaps even, and I think this is why the Lord does this for us, is that there's truth in both, right? Maybe this is a both and, not just an either or, but I think they're both good. So I wanted to make sure you had those, uh, because I think both illuminate wonderful things about this picture. Well, either way, there's just more. There's more details. We see another name for Jesus in verse 13 as we finish that verse. He's called the Word of God. The Logos of God, just like John chapter 1 and other places, Jesus is the word of God. And as the word of God, he conquers. He conquers by the word. He conquers all nations. And this is pictured here vividly for us as the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. He's not only the word, but he speaks the word. And there's even a reference here to Psalm 2. As a reference here to Psalm 2, we see that Jesus also has a rod of iron. And this is a symbol of sovereign power and kingship, power to rule over all the nations of the earth. Psalm 2 says he'll shatter the nations, the rod of iron. As we've seen already, looking back at Revelation 14, 19 through 20, as we also saw previously mentioned when I talked about Isaiah 63, what has Jesus come to do? says that he comes to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. You see, his judgment, he comes to judge and to make war. His judgment is full. It's complete. That's terrifying. His judgment is terrifying, especially for those who are loyal not to him but those who are loyal to the dragon and to his beasts. You might remember what John wrote at the very beginning in his greeting in the book. In chapter 1, verse 7, you can look back there if you would like. 
John prefacing what he's about to write to detail these visions he's received. He says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. He is coming. And every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. Every eye will see him. And then he says, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. All the earth, every eye. And all will wail on account of him. The final detail here we see of this returning king is found in verse 16. I want you to look there with me again. The text says that on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The the thigh symbolizes manly strength. It's a symbol of manly strength. And thus, Christ's robe bears titles upon his thigh, upon his strength that proclaim his most strong and supreme rule over everything. You see, there are lesser kings on this earth, but Jesus is the king of the kings. He's king of kings. There are lesser lords on this earth, but Jesus is the Lord of lords. No one tops his kingship or his lordship. Commentator Robert Mounts says this, and I'll quote him very briefly. This name emphasizes the universal sovereignty of the warrior Christ in his end time or last day triumph over all the enemies of God. Boom. It's done. What what work of art could portray that? I mean, I've seen pictures of this before, maybe you have, but does it really capture it? I mean, what artist could accurately and convincingly capture all the details of the returning king that we see in just these six verses? In just six verses, look at the picture here. There's just too much here to behold. I mean, we've only scratched the surface this morning. We've only scratched the surface And there's more. There's even more to come. And you find more in the second section of our passage, moving on to verses 17 through 21. For here we see not just the returning king coming to conquer, but we actually see the triumphant king. We see the conquering king. So John now, the vision changes. He sees an angel standing in the sky, as it were, standing in the sun, and this angel is calling out to all the birds flying directly overhead. The angel is crying out with an invitation, an invitation that's set at odds with the invitation we saw just last week. Do you remember that invitation? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This one is set at odds. Set against it is this feast that's called here the Great Supper of God. The Great Supper of God. Now, we've already read these verses, and I want to be sensitive to not only the ages, but also the consciences of those gathered here this morning. So I'm not going to go through those details again. But I think we can all agree these details are gruesome. This feast is gruesome. The meal that's served to these birds, again, a picture 
of that day, the meal that served is shocking. It's comprehensive and encompasses the full scope of mankind. Not just those who would be the kings leading the charge against Jesus, but it's all a phrase common in the New Testament to encompass this as slave and free, small and great. Phrase that we see there, all are subject. But that aside, I want you to notice, please notice that the outcome of the battle, as I said before, is never in question. This is presented as a a done deal. The summons to supper is given before the events of verse 19. It's given before the beast and the kings of the earth gather their armies for the final battle to wage war against Jesus. They're gathering in vain. This battle is just a breath. Already the, the decision is done. The outcome is done. The birds are invited to come. And then look what happens in verses 20 and 21. The two beasts who we've seen before that represent tyrannical uh, anti-Christ governments, right? Set up against Christ and also those false religions and worldly systems set up against. We've already seen Babylon destroyed. And now what do we see? We see those two beasts, those two members of the fake trinity, the counterfeit trinity of Satan. What, what happens to them? They're thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. They're thrown into hell. Notice the text is clear that they are thrown there alive. They're not slain and then thrown in. They are thrown alive, highlighting the truth that it is a place of suffering. I know we start to wiggle a little bit in our seats, don't we? Don't forget, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person. In the Bible, it's true And here we see it, and we're going to see it again and again. And notice that all those who are loyal to the beasts, to those who receive their mark and worship Satan, through them it says they are slain by the sword that came from the mouth of the conquering triumphant king. And but a moment, they're just gone. They're routed. And the outcome is never in question. It's done. And so such a passage just like hits us, right? I know it does me. This isn't the picture I grew up seeing on the wall of Jesus, but there's truth here. There's truth here, and I think it brings up questions, and I could never address every question we may have about it, but I do want to, as we start to land the plane here, I do want to bring up two, I think two very pressing questions about this that will also inform where we're going uh, throughout the rest of the book. And I think first, that first question is, okay, when does this battle take place again? <laughs> when does it take place? Because we're going to start next week and Pastor Andy say it's another cycle, but we're beginning with Satan being cast in? I'm confused. Well, it's good. So we need to ask, when does this battle take place? Are we separating 20, 19 and 20 wrongly? I don't think so. And we're going to see it next week and we'll see it even more when we get to 21 one through eight, and and discussing the millennium next week. But this morning, I just want to point out that while some see even this battle, some say this battle right here is actually a picture of the whole church age, just like each cycle is a picture of the church age. Particularly the post-millennials will look at this and say that this battle actually represents 
the whole church age, that time between Christ's ascension and his second coming. And they see this as the word of God triumphing over the world as the gospel goes forth and Christ's kingdom spreads in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. And some people see that this battle's like that. And I sympathize with it. I do, but I can't accept it. Because I think that what we have here is what is consistent with the endings of all the other cycles that we've encountered. These pictures of the last day. And I think this is what we saw a picture of back in 1616. The battle of Armageddon. So you're probably thinking, what does this matter? He says, this is pressing. Why is it important? Well, I think, primarily, it helps us to avoid having a wrongly hostile attitude toward our present world. What do I mean by that? Do you find it hard to remain hopeful in the midst of all the hopelessness that we face today? I mean, maybe you're just so optimistic you don't even notice it. But if you're like me, it's really hard to remain hopeful. So it's easy to look at this passage, right? To look at this, to see Christ smiting the nations and slaying the wicked, as we see him doing here, and then conclude that we should adopt a militant and antagonistic view of our world. It happens. Maybe it's happened to you. Instead of being filled with a gospel-penetrating hope that works towards the redemption of the world through that, that message of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given by God, you can go to 2 Corinthians 5 and see that. Instead of that, that hopeful, I would say gospel hopefulness, instead of that, the church, especially that takes the view that this is the picture of the whole. It doesn't always, but it can become a haven for self-righteous, hateful, and spiteful, what I'll call gospel jerks. Jerks who forget that they were once just like those whom they are despising. That they, that we, that I was dead in my sin, lost and without hope. You see, to maintain the gospel balance and the urgent call that we have, according to the rest of Scripture, we need to see this battle as being the last battle at the, the very end, at that time when the time of hope is over, where there is no longer any more time to bow our knee to Christ. That time when the full number of the many, God's elect, have been gathered into heaven and the last day is upon us. I think that view keeps us humble. That view keeps us balanced with the rest of Scripture. And I think most importantly, it gives us an urgency that I've talked about week after week, an urgency to share the gospel with others, to tell others what is coming and what's happening and what they need to be rescued from. And I think that brings us to that second pressing question. How? How, Pastor Dan? How do we maintain our hope, our hope in a triumphant king while we await his coming to fully conquer? Pastor Dan or anyone who will listen, maybe you've asked this, how do I stand up to evil? How do I persevere in my faith despite persecution? And how can I witness victory in this present age, not by militant assaults, against evil, but rather by my testimony of the saving blood of Jesus Christ. What difference can it make? 
Meet Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you are familiar with that name. Rosaria Butterfield at one time. This is how she would have described herself. This is how she describes herself. A leftist lesbian professor that despised Christians in their Bible for what I saw as politics of hatred against people like me. In 1997, she wrote an article in a local newspaper, and it attacked the values of a Christian men's ministry, known at that time, and some of you will recognize this, the Promise Keepers. She wrote an article attacking it. Following the publication of that article, you want to guess what happened? She received all kinds of letters, abusive letters, from people professing to be Christians many assuring her that she's definitely going to hell for attacking such a sacred ministry. Some of them may have been addressing truth about sin and sin's consequences. They're kind of being gospel jerks about it. But she did get one letter that was different. One letter that was different, it was written by some no-name pastor, right, at a local conservative Presbyterian church, theologically conservative Presbyterian church. And in his letter, he graciously and pointedly challenged Rosaria to debate. He challenged her, who was an academic, very intelligent woman. She is an academic, very intelligent. He wants her to defend the presuppositions of her arguments, to engage in discussion And he claimed that her views were inconsistent with her position as a postmodern secular humanist. She was intrigued by this. She was impressed with his wisdom. And so what followed was a dialogue that began by letters and went from there. And she says it changed her life, impressed by how this pastor and his wife and family entered into her world, had her over to their home, shared meals with her, brought her friends into their home and talked openly about sexuality and about politics. She found something changing in her. She began to be drawn to them and drawn to the Jesus whom they talked about. And that they represented as that relationship grew. The pastor never sidestepped the truth about God's judgment and about sin. He pointed out that all sin, including his own, was worthy of punishment and death. God used those discussions to point Rosaria to the only hope that she had to escape. That was the blood of Christ. Shut up on the cross. So one day, Rosaria begins reading the Bible. The spirit began to soften her heart, and eventually she left behind her life of sin. She was saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And today, now today, she's married to a minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, located in Durham, North Carolina. And if you read her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's a great title, right? The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. 
If you read her other articles or listen to her speak, and you can find any of it online, she constantly claims that not only is life with Jesus better than any scorn she faces for her change, and she does get scorned a lot for the change that happened, but she credits the simple and the humble life and gospel sharing ministry of that pastor and that wife for leading her to Christ and his kingdom. Not being a gospel jerk, but being gospel faithful. So friends, I want you to hear me. The picture in front of us is not easily captured. The details are vast. The scene is terrifying. And I'm sure I didn't do it all the justice it needs in this short amount of time this morning. But don't miss the forest for the trees. Indeed, Christ our King is returning. And he will indeed come to judge, to make war, to conquer. So the most important question we can ask today is how are we going to live in response to that? The obvious answer is if you haven't bowed the knee to King Jesus, you need to do that today. I pray that the Spirit would change your heart and you would bow the knee to Jesus. For the rest of us, though, Let's take up his banner. Let's take up his banner and be filled with his love for a world that desperately needs him. Are we gonna share our lives and his gospel with others around us? Are are we gonna not only rejoice that we have been rescued from this judgment, but are we also going to graciously and eagerly invite others to join in that triumph with us? Are we willing, are we ready to share our lives and his gospel with others? It's our call. It's our mission as a church. And I would say it's our joy. For we know the end. We know to whom victory belongs. And we are victorious through him. Amen and amen. Would you turn with me in your bulletin? to?